Welcome to the podcast, Now Listen to Me, Catawba Island fun facts, lore, anecdotes, and sometimes even a little history. This podcast is brought to you by the Catawba Island Historical Society. These stories and conversations, not necessarily 100% historically accurate, are told by lifelong Catawba Island resident Don Rhodes. Born in 1931, Don was an integral part of the community his entire life until he passed away at age 90 in 2021. Don's passion for preserving the artifacts and stories of Catawba Island led to establishing the Historical Society and the Catawba Island Museum. The trustees of the Historical Society share these stories with you, largely unedited for content, so you can get a glimpse of what it was like to sit with Don and hear the stories in his own words. These recorded stories are a complement to all the contributions Don made to the History Museum and the entire community. In Episode 6, we move on from the driving tour and now share a presentation Don Rhodes gave in 2015 about the wine and peach industry on Catawba Island. This is the first of two episodes featuring his presentation. In this first segment, Don discusses grapes, the history of winemaking, the fruit industry of Catawba Island, and touches on peaches as well. In the next episode, Don continues his discussion of the grape, wine, and peach crops of Catawba Island. Well, let me just start right up front, and then I'll pass these around. When I talk about grapes, I'm going to be talking about the Native American Vitus Labrusca, those grapes that were found growing when white man contact in the 1500 east of the Mississippi. Okay? I'm not going to be talking about, or if I do, the Vitus Labrusca, that's this bag. This is the Vitus Vinifera. The Vinifera, that is a wine making grape that goes back to the time of Christ. There were 250 varieties of grapes at the time of Christ, and the Bible has mentioned winemaking and grapes many, many, many times, hundreds of times. But I'm going to pass these around. One of the things I want you to understand is the Vitus Labrusca and the Vitus Vinifera. There's a distinct difference and the easy way to tell. Now, if you're a winemaker, the Vitus Labrusca, our native grapes, are high in acid and low in sugar. If you happen to have the Asian Vinifera, the French Vinifera, they're high in sugar and low in acid. So all those out in California that you read your magazines and you buy your wine because you watch the television, remember they're putting acids in their wine to give you your taste where we're putting sugar in our wines to give you your taste. Let me just show you the big difference here now. Bear with me for just a second. I could explain this in hours, but I just wanted to show you. This, by the way, is the extent of my Concord grape crop. This is the only thing the raccoons have left me. I had, I had a search for this. I had six vines. This is all, once these berries start to mature and get a little ripe, they get very aromatic. 
And the purists call that foxiness. You'll hear that term if you're a wine connoisseur. But anyhow, the animals love it. And once they get that aromatic, they'll eat the grape. Now, I want to show you this. If I take one of our Native American grapes, and I take it and I crush it, you see the pulp comes out? That's slip skin. Don't ever forget it. Slip skin. If I take the Vitus vinifera and I take it and I crush it between my fingers, I crush the grape. The Native American grapes are slip skin. All the other grapes, including the muscadines, Florida, Georgia, Alabama type, are tight-skinned. Remember that. Distinct taste. These high in sugar, low in acids. Low in sugar, high in acids. Next thing I want to point out to you is 99% of all the juice is white. Grape juice is all white. There's only about two varieties out of the 2,500 varieties known to man today that give us a color juice. Where does the color from? In the winemaking process, we let the fermentation on the skins get up to about two or three percent, and it will leach the pigment from just inside the skin. So if we make a pink catawba, it is soaked on the skins, allowed to ferment, to this low alcohol content, releases the pigment into color. So with a color comes from the skin, and the skins must be fermented on to get the color into the grape. Okay, I want to point that out. But just remember, I'll pass these around. These are the type of grapes you buy down at the store all winter long. They come from South America and Central America. Vinifera. You crush them, you crush them. But you take our native Ohio grapes, American east of the Mississippi, they're slip skin. The Concord grape, by the way, was discovered in the early 1850s in Concord, Massachusetts. The guy found these growing wild outside of his window. Some boys had given him some grapes. He threw the, the grapes out the window. The pits took off. They took off on their own. He developed the grape in Concord, Massachusetts. He got a gold watch from the Massachusetts Historical Society in 1880. That's all he ever got for development of the Concord grape. Now, one more thing, and then I will get off of this. But as the grape berry matures, there is a naturally occurring wax on the outside of the skin. You see it, how I'm rubbing it off here? You'll see that naturally occurring wax on the skin of the berry, when mature, will collect one of the 2,000 varieties of airborne yeast that is windblown through the vineyard. So it's the good Lord only put the grape berry on earth. It has its own water, its own sugar, 
in its own yeast, and it's the only berry that will make its own wine if left alone. Does not have to have any additive by man. Now you can make the taste change, but the grape is the only thing, the only berry. Okay, enough of that. Just remember, east of the Mississippi, Ohio wines, Michigan wines. Now, I want to qualify just this minute. After World War II, they started to bring the canes of our Native American grapes and catching the tops of the California grapes or the vinifera, and they call them hybrids. Now, the reason they have to attach the cane to the Native American roots because there is a little mite that lives in our ground called the phylloxera that will destroy the vinifera. In the 1600s and in the 1700s, there were laws passed that these colonists must plant so many grapes. And they brought the grapes over from Europe. They lived one, two, three years, and then died because the roots could not live with that phylloxera mite. But our grapes that had been here for thousands and thousands of years have immunity to it. So we take the vinifera top, graft it to the native roots, and now we have the California wines, the vinifera wines, east of the Mississippi. Okay, just a little background on that. Wine making is a lot of fun. And drinking ain't bad either. <laughs> a couple of guys here will vouch to that. Well, what I brought down here were some pictures. Now, let me just talk a little bit about Catawba Point, which I'm most familiar with. I was born and raised there. What we have here are pictures of three, the two docks. This is now the Miller Ferry Dock, which was built in 1882 as the Catawba Island Fruit Company Dock. There were 10 investors in the Catawba Dock Company. Okay, now, this is the first dock at the point. That was built, started in the late 1840s. That's the first dock. Now, if I come over here, there's the third dock. Most people don't know, but when the lime kiln was built in the 1850, there was a lime kiln dock. Now, when the lime kiln was just, uh, went bankrupt in receivership in 1855, they let this dock go to hell, literally, and the ice tore it up and broke it up. But I know where that is and got some timbers out of it. But the point is, there was a dock here, then this dock started in the late 1840s. This was a dock that was used for moving timbers and produce and material up and down, up and down the lake. But this dock here, because this dock here become in disrepair, and in the 1880s, the fruit growers here, there was so much fruit to ship, and the markets were in Detroit, Cleveland, Detrito, Detroit, De Toledo, on lake ports, that they had to entice and provide a dock suitable 
for steamboats and primarily the side wheelers to come in. So they built the dock. And this is out at the dock. These are steamboats. This particular steamboat, the American Eagle, it was primarily hauled passengers between the Lake Erie Islands and Putin Bay and Catawba Point and Ottawa City. That's where, where I live. But this boat here, it not only hauled fruit, but hauled passengers. It was excursion and fruit. There was one large boat called the uh, I can't, I'm a senior woman, I can't think of it right now, that was built in Detroit that was called the Greyhound of the Lakes. It was the fastest boat, I'll think of it in a minute, but it hauled more fruit to Detroit and Cleveland than any other boats. But the point is, I'm getting at is, and I'll digress for just a second, when the fruit was picked at this time of the year, there was so much that these folks realized that as individuals they could not handle the market. So they made small groups. There was three small groups here on the island, one on the west side, and it was headed up by Haddon called the Catawba Island Fruit Company. There was one on the east road headed up by uh, Owen called the uh, Union Fruit Company. Then they later combined and called it the Catawba Island Union Fruit Company. Then they were the ones that supplied the fruit with a large packing house where the farmers brought the food, the fruit was grated, and then shipped on, off these docks if the fruit was going to go to Cleveland, it came on this side of the dock and was loaded. If the ship, if the ship was going to take it to Detroit, it would come down on this side. And the, what the painter here has showed is loads of peaches being loaded on these docks. This dock was again built in 1882 for the primary reason of shipping fruit primarily peaches. By the 1880s, grape growing was really tapering off. It was no longer profitable to have large acreage in grapes on Catawba. They were being replaced with peaches and then apples. When you get over here, you're out on the dock looking up to the mainland. And this is the Catawba Island Fruit Company. It became the Catawba Island Garage. It's, it's eventually was torn down and three barns were built on Catawba Island from this building. This is the Cottage Inn built in 1895, torn down by Miller in 1950 to provide more parking when he bought out George Lanza's interest in the Catawba Island uh, Erie Isle, okay? And this house here is Ira Dutcher. He completed this house in 1874, Ira Dutcher. He was a self-taught uh, 
uh, machinist type, bridge builder type, fruit grower, quite a guy. And I want to emphasize a little bit on him because he doesn't get any credit. He started the Masonic Lodge in Oak Harbor, first president, started the Masonic Lodge in Port Clinton, the first grand exalted pishposh, started the Catawba Chapel. He hand carried the petition, he and Walter Smith, that changed our name from Van Rensselaer Township to Catawba Township in June of 1863. He gets no credit for these things, but he did a lot. He was a trustee. Uh, he did a lot of bridge uh, building in Portland. He came here and he also was a superintendent of the building of the lime kiln. Remember I mentioned the lime kiln got it started in 1850, when, when in receivership in 1855. Contrary to what you believe, and what you read. Let me just tell you something about, I'm gonna deviate a little bit, folks. I want, this is the county 1874 atlas. This is our Bible. This is what everybody goes for. This is what everybody references. This is what everybody quotes. But let me just tell you something about county atlases. They were sold before they were put on the market. And if you bought 10 subscriptions, you could be very well sure that you were going to get very well mentioned in the write-ups in the, in the book. If you didn't buy one or two or no subscriptions, you may or may not got mentioned. This gentleman was Hardesy. He was from Chicago. Spent a lot of time on Catawba. And he happened to elope with Kegney's daughter uh, without the benefit of marriage. And that was quite a thing in the 1870s. But th they got married when they got to Toledo. But the point is, he had roots here through his new wife. And many of the early references are very elaborate on some families, and other families are pretty well completely left out of our history. So just remember, when you get into county histories, the subscriptions were sold previous to the articles being written, and a lot of times they leave a lot of people out. But anyhow, the reason I brought this down here today is, if, this is Ottawa City, but this is Catawba. And if you take a good look at it, you'll see it's about 80% in 1874 planted with fruit. And of the 80% 80, 80%, about 60% is of the grape variety in the 1870s. They were still planting a lot of grapes. Now, of the, of the grape variety, about 80% was of the Catawba variety. So hence the name Catawba Island, thanks to Ira Dutcher and Walter Smith hand walking that petition around. 34 signed yes, and 14 at the west end of Catawba up here voted no. <laughs> and Henry Althorpe voted no. He wanted to stay with connection with Port Clinton and Portage Township. But he appears in this book, 
many, many times. So just remember, when you get these county atlases, sometimes they favor more people than others. So we talked a little bit about the peaches. After the Civil War, uh, they get, there's a gentleman by the name of Andrews planted out the first 50 acres here on Kitab, according to the atlas. Now, I have documentation that question that. They say that the documentation said there were peaches planted prior to 1850. But this is what they don't tell you is. Peaches were first planted on the East Coast around Delaware and Maryland in those areas. And they're still there. There's a lot of them there. But the point is, when those peaches mature and have a pit, that was new to the Indians. And the Indians would carry those pits. And when white men started to develop this particular area, primarily the Danbury area, they were already found growing. They called them orchards, but actually they were wild peaches and wild apples planted by the Indians. Anytime you could plant something with seeds, apple seeds and peach pits, the only thing is biologies and the botanists will explain and tell us that when you plant a seed, one out of 10,000 will you get the parent. You'll get something wild. So, but that didn't bother the Indians. As long as there was some kind of a fruit, he was happy. But when white man came and all these wild apples and wild peaches were growing here and there and all over, they had to destroy those because when they got those vines or those cuttings or their pannings that they had to pay for, they didn't want those crossed with those those wild ones. Now there was another variety. As these grapes, as the grapes and peaches, primarily peaches, as these peaches at this time of year became a glut on the market, they all got to get ripe, but once there was not a market, a lot of times they were just picked and dumped. Believe me, I lived through that. It wasn't always glorious. And sometimes they made money, but every third year, another two years they lost. But the point is, an easy way to get rid of those bad peaches when they were glutton, they were too ripe, people didn't want to buy them, they dumped them around sinkholes. And around the sinkholes, pretty soon, they get some of these crazy wild peaches come up from the pits. So every once in a while, somebody would find a decent-looking peach grown by a sinkhole. And if you took those graphs and then moved them on, you could, in turn, develop some pretty nice grapes. There was a gentleman on the East Catawba Road called Will Rafker who did just that. He selected a lot of those wild grapes, and he ended up with four varieties of grapes that he named after his daughters, okay? So there were Catawba people who actually developed varieties of grapes. I just want to give Will Rafker some credit for that. Now, if, if I'm going too fast or too far, I'm kind of jumping around a little bit, but the, the point is we started with the grape business, but it, the grapes, you can't ship them 
They don't last that long. And if you don't intend to make or have a winery in the area, then you're going to have a lot of loss. So the farmers out here, along with the Danbury folks, got together. And he said, we need a winery. Now, grapes really got going from Kelly's Island. They were moved over there, and the Kellys developed them, the carpenters planted them, and I mean that's the son-in-law of Kellys, in 1843, 1842. But by 1850, they had done so well. I'm talking about the native grapes now, the Catawba varieties, not the Concords because they didn't get here yet. They only developed in the 1850s, but the Catawbas. Now, why did they plant Catawbas? Well, let me digress for just a second. I'm going to jump a little bit now. The Catawba grape gets its name from the Catawba River, which divides North and South Carolina in the Piedmont region. region. They found a couple of little clumps of wild grapes. Grapes that, instead of being very tart, and very acidity and very sour, were fairly large, had good color, and seemed to be pleasant to the taste. Now, that's a lot different from the little wild possum grapes that they were used to finding on the trencerellas or the fox grapes that the fox ate. So those were taken up to the Washington, D.C. by a gentleman by the name of Aldum. And he had contact, I'm jumping around quick here, this took years, folks. He got in contact with, and this is the name I want you to remember, Nicholas Longworth in Cincinnati, Ohio. He is the father of the wine industry in this country, bar none. Now, not that there wasn't wine made in Florida by the Spanish, but from the Muscadines. Well, now that there wasn't wine made out in California by the monks with the very sweet sacramental wines, but I'm talking a wine that bottle with a label and sold and was profitable. That was Nicholas Longworth's Catawba wine in 1825. He imported or encourage those German immigrants to come over and settle on the banks of the Ohio River. And they, he'd give each one of them 10 or 20 or 100 acres, depending on their, their, their monies. And then they would terrace that and then raise the grapes because they were very industrious, hard workers, and in most cases already familiar with winemaking. And they would sell their grapes then to Longworth. Now then Longworth then would make the wine. He also was, was the first in this country to make a champagne. In actuality, it was probably a, a young Catawba wine that was still gassy. And they corked it too quick and it made it effervescent. It wasn't true champagne. But he and later did. He incorporated, or incorporated, he encouraged a champagne maker from France to come over in 1842. And he was here three days and drowned in the Ohio River. So uh, that didn't work out too well. But, but the point is, Longworth does not get credit in this country 
to being the father of the wine industry that goes to California and maybe New York. He f was far earlier than those folks. But let me just digress for a second to put this all in perspective. He built cellars, and I'll use the Mon Ami over here for example. The top cellar was primarily used for still wines, and the bottom cellar was used for champagnes. Okay, that's 1868, it got started, went into business in 1872, was only in business very short time, only about three, four years. Then it went out of the winemaking business. And it laid, sh it didn't lay fallow, but it was not used in the winemaking until about 1907, and then again about 1908 in those years, for a very short time. Then it went out of the winemaking business. Came really profitable when Manti bought it in the late 30s and made it into a restaurant. Had a lot of different things. A lot of things went on there. Some of them we're not even going to talk about. But the, but, but, but the point is the two sellers. Once the champagne was corked for its final corking, there was a pressure buildup because of the second carbonation. And to reduce that pressure, they would put it down into the second basement where it was cooler, 54 degrees, which would cut down on the breakage. Here's the point I'm getting at. It wasn't until the late 1850s, now get this, 1850s, that Louis Pasteur, the same gentleman who come up with the smallpox of vaccination and a lot of the other medical facilities, He's the one that explained the fermentation equation. Prior to that time, they knew if they cooled the bottle, it wouldn't explode. But they never knew about carbonation. They didn't know that the yeast takes sugar in, develops alcohol and carbon dioxide. He explained all that. So what I want you to realize, how many hundreds of years uh, people made and drank wine and never knew what was going on in that bottle until Louis Pasteur explained all that. And that kind of took a lot of guesswork out of winemaking, okay? For example, when Longworth started his wineries in the 1820s down in Cincinnati, Ohio, what did he use? He didn't have instruments. He didn't have Louis Pasteur. This is what he did. He took the fresh must, the must being the first pressing, and it was still in the same day or the next day. Took an average size hen's egg and put it into the must, into the juice, and the egg would sink. But he would add enough sugar to change the specific gravity of the wine and the egg floated about the size of a nickel. Then he knew he had put enough sugar with his native grape sugar to make a successful fermentation. Those were the instruments that Nicholas Longworth started out with. They had fairly good thermometers, but they did not have good ways to measure alcohol, and they didn't know much at all about fermentation until Pasteur discovered it and wrote all that down. But now, what kind of sugar do you use? 
brown sugar from Louisiana. That give it a little different taste than what we know today, our white, pure, granulated sugar. Okay, had a little more stronger taste to it. I just want to give you a background. These things didn't happen overnight. Took a long period of time. Thank you for listening to Now Listen to Me, Catawba Island fun facts, lore, anecdotes, and sometimes even a little history, a production of the Catawba Island Historical Society. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at CatawbaIslandHistoricalSociety.com or come visit the Catawba Island History Museum in person, located in historic Union Chapel near the beautiful shores of Lake Erie in Ohio. Until next time, happy history!